Thank you for listening to the Lake Murray Baptist Church podcast. Lake Murray Baptist Church is a Southern Baptist church located in Lexington, South Carolina. My name is David Sons, and I serve as the family and discipleship pastor here at the church, as well as the host of this podcast. Our hope is that this podcast would be a resource for our members who are seeking to live out their faith in Jesus Christ in their everyday lives. We want to use this platform to exalt Jesus and equip the members of Lake Murray to be the church where they live, work, and play. Welcome to episode seven of the Lake Murray Baptist Church podcast. Today, our guest is our first returning guest, our lead pastor, Josh Powell. Josh, thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. Good to be here. A couple weeks ago, you and I were talking about uh, this week. We're recording this on Monday of Holy Week. And one of the things that we wanted to do was spend a little bit of time uh, reflecting on Holy Week. And so since the third or fourth century, Christians have celebrated or set aside this week to reflect on uh, the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so uh, begins with Palm Sunday, which we celebrated yesterday. Uh, and so just thought this would be a good opportunity for you and I to kind of walk through some of these events. Ultimately, it culminates in uh, the death of Jesus on the cross and then his resurrection on Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday. But we just celebrated Palm Sunday yesterday. And so can you talk a little bit about the significance of Jesus's ride into Jerusalem? Uh, he rides into Jerusalem. Uh, they're waving the palm branches. He's on the back of the colt. It obviously is a, a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. But, but can you talk a little bit about the significance and why Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem this way at the beginning of the last week of his earthly ministry. Yeah, and I was uh, thinking that through as I was dealing with the the sermon topic last week and talking about, I just, I love the way that John puts it together when we, we looked at John's gospel yesterday in the sermon. And I love the way he puts it together because uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, they're all looking to arrest him. Caiaphas has already kind of laid that seed out there of it's better for one man to die than the whole nation to die. So that what they wanted to happen was, was put him to death. So doing all that. And so everybody's kind of doing it, doing their thing, trying to, trying to, uh, Jesus is hiding out, goes into Bethany. He's there with the family, Lazarus's family in Bethany. And then it's, it's almost like Jesus says it's time. So back in, back in John chapter seven, after Jesus fed the 5,000, he had a large crowd gathered around him. There was another festival going on in Jerusalem and his disciples were saying, let's go, let's go to Jerusalem because now's the time. The PR campaign is going and now's the time to go in. We can build upon this and, and everything. And, and there Jesus says, no, the time is not now. You don't have any idea when the time is. But then now they're looking to arrest him. He's hiding out a little bit. And, and he all of a sudden he says, now, now is the time. And so he just rides in, just in fulfillment of, of prophecy, rides in on this, uh, this colt of a donkey, a foal of a donkey, as the scripture says, and comes into town. Now, the significance there is, is a couple fold. One, uh, of course, he's not coming to battle because he's not riding a war horse. So it's not as if he's looking to be a king. They're, they're praising him, Hosanna, king of Israel. It's not, as, it's not as if he's looking to be a king that's going to overthrow the Roman government right into Jerusalem and take, take that. Now, to say that doesn't mean that kings never rode donkeys. Um, actually, they would ride donkeys in that time. It was just a sign that they were coming in peace. Right. And so Solomon rides in in a similar fashion. That's right? that's exactly right. So it's not as if that you know it was silly that he'd be riding in this. What was silly in some ways for them is that here's this guy who is clearly this uh, revolutionary, 
that's the way that the leadership saw him and, and everything else. And he was revolutionary in how he was teaching from, you know, uh, Sabbath was made um, for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is revolutionary teaching with the Pharisees. And so he's revolutionary in, in so many things. And now he comes in, but he's coming in on this foal of a donkey in peace, not, on, not, not, not looking to do battle in the way that you would expect to overthrow the situation. But on top of all that, he's coming in to fulfill Scripture. I mean, ultimately, I think it's I think it's Paul in First Corinthians fifteen, you know, um, where he talks about the gospel and he says uh, to fulfill the Scriptures, you know, as the Scriptures stated. He keeps saying this, and that Jesus, everything you find that Jesus is doing is to fulfill the Word of God, and so, especially in that last week. There's so many things he's doing to fulfill the word, the word of God. And so that Zechariah passage, Jesus is doing exactly what the scriptures said he would do, and he's doing it to bring the meaning that he had. So in Zechariah, it looks like he's going to war. In Zechariah 9, he's, he's breaking the bow of the strong. He's, he's going to have his rule set up from sea to sea, from the great river to the mountains. He's coming in, and it looks like he's going to war in Zechariah 9. He's fulfilling that passage, but he, and, and as we know, he is going to war, but it's a different kind of war. Um, and so I guess that's, you know, just putting it all together. Plus that, you know, the significance there is also in the fact that Matthew Mark and Luke are similar in nature, as you said, to start with. So what we call the synoptic gospels, kind of, they see things um, as one, um, similar in nature uh, with some variations. In John's gospel, just completely different and separate. But John's gospel has the triumphal entry in there. So you see this right. as, as important that all four of the gospel writers are saying this is an event that is important and is significant. Yeah, I was really thankful yesterday uh, and actually was interested. Um, most of the time when you hear the triumphal entry preached, you hear it from one of the synoptic gospels, so from from Matthew, Mark, or, or Luke, uh, which, as you said, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier uh, before we went on, uh, they all tell a pretty similar account. Uh, John, though, takes a different route altogether. Um, and, and I was interested to see you preach the triumphal entry from John's gospel yesterday. Um, and, and I think what's interesting about John is, I think you mentioned this, but, but really the back half of John's gospel, almost the back half of John's gospel, just deals with the last week of Jesus's life and focuses specifically, not necessarily on the events kind of surrounding the uh, last week of Jesus's life, but the teachings of Jesus in the last week of his life, specifically the teachings of Jesus in, in the upper room after he washes the disciples' feet. And so, uh, Talk to us a little bit about, um, or maybe just, I guess, summarize for us some of the important things that John emphasizes there that Jesus teaches in the last week of his life. Yeah. John's gospel, as you said, is, is, is structured differently than the other three. The other three almost read, they're, they're not biographies in, in the true sense of the word, but they almost read that way. Whereas John's gospel is using a different method. He, he kind of centers his gospel around seven miracles and seven I am statements. And so everything's kind of centered around those, those two categories right there, those two things. And, and so as he does that, he's trying to prove something. And then John tells us at the end of his gospel exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Jesus did many other things to show that he was the savior, you know, of the world. And so as we look at the back half of John's gospel, I'm, 
I'm always kind of stunned at how much time John gives to that last week. Obviously, it was significant um, to John as a disciple who was there sure. and just memorable in every way. At the same time, it is just full of some incredible sayings. Um, just just like what we saw with the triumphal entry, it ends with the Pharisees saying the whole world has gone to him. And then the very next thing is, are these Greeks who are coming to see him from the world, you know, from the Gentile world, if you will. And then, but he goes in and you see him uh, in, in chapter 13, washing the feet and and, and of his disciples coming to serve and then telling them, you go and serve just like I'm doing. And then chapter 14, he starts teaching on the Holy Spirit. And and really, if you if you look at it, that's the one thing that really kind of sets that apart is how much he teaches on the Holy Spirit. And he says some incredible things in there, like it's better for me to depart and go away. Something the disciples could not possibly have understood at that time. And so it's better for me to depart and go away because I'm sending the helper. And he talks about the helper and um, fear not for I've overcome the world. You see how much in that passage he comforts his his uh, disciples because he knows what's coming. They don't know what's coming. It says that in a couple of places. They didn't get this until after his death and resurrection. They don't know what's coming, but he knows what's coming. So he tells them, fear not, I've overcome the world. The world hates you, it hates me, and, and you should expect it to hate you, but fear not, I've overcome the world. Or John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, another I am statement. Or John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And and so apart from me, you can do nothing. He's, he's showing their dependence. John 16, again, teaching on the Spirit. John 17, that that prayer, you know, before... Uh, before tells us that Peter, James, and John went a little deeper into Gethsemane. It's almost like John hears this prayer that Jesus prays and records it. Now it tells us a little bit later he falls asleep. Right. But before that, he records this prayer. And in that prayer, he's praying for his disciples. And then the second half, he starts praying for all of those who would believe because of their teaching, which is us. Right. And so, um, and I just remember what he prays when he says, you know, I pray that they are one so that the world may know. Mm. who I am. And so uh, all of that teaching there to the disciples is so rich with one, our dependence upon him, um, our situation, and, and he knows exactly what's needed at that point. Uh, and also how for John's gospel, Jesus, that same thing we saw at the end of the triumphal entry passage, the Greeks coming to see him. Um, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself that idea that Jesus has come not just to be Savior of Israel and the Jews, but to be Savior of the world, which I think is one of John's main themes throughout. Um, the lamb slain uh, for the world. And so I think that's a part of his theme throughout. So when you get to the back half, uh, I know that's a, you, you asked for a one maybe. I'm, I'm telling you all of no, it. No, no, so I think that's rich. a great summarization of it. I think it's a great summarization because you're right. There's so many important things that Jesus teaches in the back half, mm -hmm. really in just that one evening, right? From, from John chapter 13, where he washes the disciples' feet all the way to the end of 17, you, you do see, you see this uh, Jesus teaching them about servanthood, right? By modeling service for them. And then Jesus is uh, the most, uh, the longest or lengthiest time where Jesus teaches on the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And who the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. is and what the Holy Spirit will do and when the Holy Spirit will come. And then ultimately it culminates in that John 17, the high priestly prayer, right? Where Jesus prays for his disciples, but he also prays for future believers. And, and what, what a powerful thing for us to read here some 2,000 years later that Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, prays 
for, for you. If you're a believer in Christ, right. Jesus was praying right. for you. You were on his mind the night before he was crucified. And, and so much of this comes immediately in, in the night before he's crucified, right? And so that Thursday evening when he and the disciples gather together to celebrate the Passover. Now, when Jesus and the disciples gathered to celebrate the Passover, this was something that they did every year. So this mm-hmm. was something that they had, they had done with some regularity. They understood it. However, this celebration of the Passover was different. Because Jesus stands and he takes the elements. He's presiding over the supper. Uh, and there, was, there were ways that you would preside over the supper. There were four different stages to the supper where the, mm-hmm. the host would stand and he would uh, offer the cup. Uh, one of the things that he would say is that the, I think at the third stanza, he would sense kind of say, this is the bread that our fathers ate in the wilderness for our affliction, right? But here Jesus does something different. And it would have been shocking to the original disciples and it should probably still shock us, but Jesus... When he gives the elements, he begins to apply these promises to himself. What's Jesus doing here, and what's the significance of that for us? You know, this this isn't the first time in John's gospel Jesus had done something like that. I think he says in John chapter 6, you know, unless anybody eats my flesh and drinks my blood, they should have no part of me. And when he does that, that becomes, in some of his disciples' eyes, a major snafu because... Um, you read in six, it's after he's fed them, the whole crowd's following him, and now he begins to teach. So they come to him the next morning, and they're wanting more food. And Jesus turns around and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Sure. Cannibalism equally as reviled then as it is now. Exactly. And so it even says in there that everyone departs from him. And he looks at his disciples and said, are y'all going to leave too? And of course, Peter says, where do we go? You know, And so... He had already kind of given that picture there. Now, I think also this goes back, and and like you said, you can look into the details of the Passover, and there's good and faithful scholars who have done this to taught us, but big picture, he goes back, and, and one of our favorite passages in the Old Testament, and one I bring up sometimes even when we do the Lord's Supper, is Psalm 23, you know, where he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and then he, you go down, he says, you prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies. Mm. And so... There's this sense in which we look toward heaven, and Jesus even points there, and there's this idea that we'll commune with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so there's this thing around the table. And why is this? Because we all have to eat. Right. We need sustenance. We need strength. We need these things. We all have to do it. And Jesus on that night, just like he did in John 6, is making it clear that he is the sustenance. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, ultimately we as believers recognize that it's really not food and water that sustains us. We need them physically, but what really sustains us is Jesus Christ himself, mm-hmm. the one who gives us the food and water. That's why we say the blessing before we eat. In that Lord's Supper, Jesus is bringing together a climax, I think, of teaching with his disciples. He is the Passover lamb, Exodus um, looking back to the the tenth plague in Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. He is the one who prepares the table before them in the midst of their enemies, because the next day will be surrounded by their enemies, and already were really, because the the deal was already brokered with Judas and 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 in in the works, if you will, because he releases him and says, "Go and do what you do." So. All of that, he is the one who prepares the table for us. He is the Passover lamb who's provided for us. And he is the one who oversees, like you said, presides over that supper 
um, now in the midst of our enemies and in the future forever in glory. So That's he's good. the one bringing it all together. So in the big picture that night, he is, it's almost like the climax of his teaching for his disciples because he's about to cut them loose mm. and they're about to, in, in many ways they're uh, I say cut them loose. He's about to go and to the cross and they're going to have to deal with things for the next couple of days until of course he returns. My, he's bringing in this climax to say as, as, Paul would say in Corinthians that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Why do we see him? I mentioned this in my sermon. I say this a lot. Why in Revelation, when we look to the throne, do we see him as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Because he's our Passover lamb. Mm. And so Jesus is saying, this body broken, you know, is, is me. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood. You know, what you're about to see happening on the cross is me sustaining you for eternity. And so he's bringing them to that point to say, I'm the one who's, who's going in, in, in your place. And I'm the one who will be the sacrifice on your behalf. And I'm the one who will sustain you and provide this meal for you in the midst of your enemies. Yeah, and he's establishing that new covenant, right? right. He's establishing the new covenant in his body and with his blood. Uh, right. That it is no longer a covenant of works, but a covenant of of grace, mm-hmm. right? That that he is he is he is doing the work necessary so that man could be reconciled to God. I think one of the things you brought up was really good about the Passover Lamb. Uh, um, Tim Keller in in his book King's Cross, which I would I would recommend, which is just him walking through the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keller speculates, and and I I don't know he he just kind of speculates in this, and I think it's kind of an interesting thought. He says that that the Passover Lamb was the central course of the of the Passover meal, mm-hmm. but none of the uh, gospel writers mention the lamb. They mention the bread. They mention the wine. And he says that that none of the gospel writers mention that the Passover lamb was was on the table. And he says, could it be the fact that the Passover lamb wasn't on the table because the Passover lamb was at the table? That's right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a cool way to think of it, specifically as we see Jesus here, um, the culmination of his teaching and the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy and his establishing of a new covenant, knowing what he's about to go and do, right? Uh, sharing this meal with his disciples uh, as a way of kind of uh, fulfilling all that has been said before and foretelling what will one day Mm -hmm. be perfectly. Right, right. And there's a sense in which we haven't drank that last cup yet. Right. And so if you think of the stages, you do the first three, but that last one, that's when he says, we'll hold on to this one until we meet together in the end. And so what we do when we gather around the table now is we are still gathering around in absolute dependence upon Christ, who is our Passover lamb, who's been provided for us, who's prepared a table in the midst of our enemies for us, forgiving us of our sins, washing it clean. And we are looking for that day, as Paul says, you know, um, for that day that we'll finally be together partaking of this supper, you know, with the lamb present. Um, and so I think that it's it has that ancient future mentality, but also has a has a deep sense of presence for us even now when we gather around the table. Um, ultimately, though, everything is Christ. Yeah, everything is found. All of our sustenance. He's the provider, and He's the meal provided. You know, it's like people. You know, He's the King, and He's the He's the servant. He's the He's the Lamb. And he is the one who's providing the lamb for us. And so in that way, Jesus is everything. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, all of Holy Week ultimately culminates in in the cross and the crucifixion. And so uh, I want us to spend some time talking specifically about the cross, but I think we're going to save that for part two. 
Uh, and so we'll roll that out on Thursday. Uh, so uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, this this episode and, and we'll save the cross because I, I do want to spend some some time specifically thinking about the cross. So Josh, you'll hang around for part two, but, but thanks for, for being here with us. Sure. And a special thank you to you, the members of Lake Mary Baptist Church, and to all of our listeners. Remember, this podcast and the other ministries of Lake Mary Baptist Church are brought to you by the generous tithes and offerings of our church membership. To give to the ministries of Lake Mary Baptist Church, you can follow the link in the description. For more information about Lake Mary Baptist Church, you can always visit our church website, www.lakemurraybc.org. Remember to subscribe to this podcast. By subscribing, you'll be notified whenever a new pod is posted. We hope that you'll join us again next time as we seek to live in light of the gospel in the places where God has placed us for his glory, our joy, and others' good.